Welcome everybody to the Institute for Government. My name is Daniel Thornton, I'm Programme Director here. Uh, very pleased to welcome you to this event about how government responds to crises. A very topical event, uh, jointly hosted with the British Red Cross. Um, I'm very pleased to have Mike Adamson, the Chief Executive of the British Red Cross, here on my right. Uh, Zena Etheridge, Chief Executive of the London Borough of Haringey uh, and a former senior civil servant and Bruce Mann, who uh, was the head of the Civil Contingency Secretariat, uh, which is the Cabinet Office unit that coordinates government responses, and he's currently associate of the Emergency Planning College, uh, which does uh, what its name suggests. Um, unfortunately, Neil Parrish, uh, the chair of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee, uh, was due to come this evening, but there's a three-line whip on uh, in the Commons, and so he's not able to join us. There is obviously a wide range of different sorts of crises. Um, we've recently had Grenfell, we've had the Manchester bombing, uh, we've had it, all, of, all sorts of events with un, unexpected characteristics, uh, and each with their own uh, special character. Um, this evening we're going to explore what happened before those crises, what happened during those crises, and what happened after. Uh, each of those is important. And ask, and I hope answer, two big questions how does government in the UK prepare for crises and learn from them? And how can government get work better with the voluntary sector, uh, both during and after a crisis? So I'm now going to invite the panellists to um, make a brief introduction of three minutes or so. Uh, then there'll be a discussion among the panel uh, and then questions to you in the audience. I know there are some experienced uh, people in the audience uh, who've uh, grappled with their own crises I'm looking forward to hearing your questions in due course. Let's start with Mike Adamson, uh, Chief Executive of uh, British Red Cross. Um, now you've, um, you've had experience of a wide range of crises and mo mobilising volunteers to help. What is it you want from government? Well, briefly, in terms of what we do, we responded to um, around 1,500 crises last year, everything from small house fires through to local flooding, through to you know, the, the terror attacks in Manchester and London, and then of course the Grenfell Tower. And what, what we're about, and emergency response is part of what the Red Cross does all around the world, and here in the UK is no exception, is uh, we're the, the, the voluntary organisation, if you like, that offers the end-to-end -end support. We're there in the rest centres, we're setting up support lines, um, we're helping manage donated goods, um, we're advocating on behalf of the people who are affected, um, we're fundraising, we're partnering, with um, you know, distributors of funds. Last year we raised around £27 million for those terror attacks and the people affected um, by Grenfell. Um, and um, you know, our aim in, in you know, convening this event is about how, how, what do we learn from all of that and how can we do it better? And I think what really strikes us is just how no self-evidently no emergency is the same, but actually even the different categories of emergencies have quite different characteristics. Local flooding is very different um, to the, a terror attack in terms of the consequences for people, the recovery period, the role the emergency services play, um, and different again to somewhere like Grenfell in terms of the complex community issues that we see. Um, and what we recognise is that in this world, there is a, is, a, is a curious mix of ne needing immense discipline um, that needs to be actually um, organised by um, authorities and then needing a much more needs-based and human-centred approach. And indeed, the, the um, report you have on your chairs is all about what a human, more human-centred approach 
might look like. And in the height of the emergency, uh, where you've got security issues and so on, clearly discipline is key around every agency, knowing absolutely who's in charge, command and control, gold, silver, bronze, all of that language is, is very key. But some of that language also can get in the way of a more human-centered approach, because actually after that immense, intense emergency period, there's something about under, really understanding what, what, what the needs are. And that's, that's everything from the personal touch to the way in which um, you know, volunteers interact with um, people affected, to, with the bereaved and the injured, and attention to personal details. Like in Oldham Hospital, we were, we were for the bereaved, people who were bereaved, have little memory boxes with locks of hair to, for people to, to, to handle situations immensely um, sensitively, through to setting up survivor receptions. So in Albert Square in Manchester, again, trying to create places where survivors can come together and get support from one another, but also from volunteers and people who are trained in providing um, that psychosocial support. Um, it's about paying attention to human aspects, you know, things like you know, immigration status or benefit status should be no barrier to actually getting, getting support. And again, some of the advocacy work we did in um, Grenfell was all around making sure that people in receipt of cash um, it wouldn't, you know, and if it came forward for support, that would not affect their immigration status, and if they receive cash, it wouldn't affect their entitlement to benefits, because actually a human-centred approach will really um, uh, build on that. The Kerslake report in Manchester emphasises the role of civil society in terms of first aiders being available, being around, you know, the, the stadium to provide support to the, you know, first aid support to the walking wounded, because the emergency services are absolutely tied up in the, you know, the, the, you know, the acute and horrible injuries that people were experiencing. So it's about how do we wrap around a human approach with um, the immense discipline needed. And together with a lot, we had a lot of learning about, um, about how we can improve, in particular around how we work with local community organisations. Again, the community organisations around the Grenfell Tower site did an extraordinary job and were, you know, just as we were in rest centres from, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning on that Wednesday morning, actually so were the local community organisations who'd never been involved in an emergency before. And we learned a lot about how do we work with local community organisations in order to make ourselves, you know, relevant and how you connect up a national and a local organisation. There's something about readiness from government. We know because we've worked, uh, we work across the country, we're part of nearly every local resilience forum in the, in the country, that actually they vary hugely in, the, in their um, quality and momentum and their ability to engage and, and convene. And in one sense that's not surprising because emergency planning departments have been um, badly affected by you know, cuts in public sector funding for local authorities. So teams that used to be four, five, six people are now you know, one person spread over a number of local authorities. So in terms of the resources available to get pull agencies together to work out what kind of scenarios you're trying to address, the preparedness you know, really needs to be paid attention to. And then finally, perhaps just highlighting you know, the opportunities for much greater coordination around fundraising. Um, we're very proud of the fact that we raised you know, £27 million, but the fact is that it's, it's a very... And that was all for... Direct, all went direct to people, victims, uh, the, the bereaved families and those injured. But the fact is it's a rather inequitable way in which to provide cash support to people. Because actually if something is very, um, uh, you know, has a lot of public support, like the victims of the Ariana Grande uh, concert attack, then actually we're able to raise a lot more money than we are for the victims of terror attacks that attract less profile. And actually you can end up with great disparate disparity 
in the amounts of cash support available. Um, and so with this work that we're trying to do in terms of lobbying government about how we streamline fundraising in order to create a, more, a greater likelihood of some equity in the way in which that's um, the funding available, and then setting up distribu having distribution partners available to actually make sure with experience in um, distributing cash to people who may be profoundly traumatised by what's happening uh, or happened, and then recognising that, of course, the, the psychological effects of these emergencies last you know, for, uh, and materialise many months afterwards. We produced a report in Northern Ireland, so I'll then move on, I'm sure I've had my three minutes, but uh, called, live, called living, yeah, but it's just interesting, called living in fear of the rain. And that was because actually of people who'd been affected by flooding um, and then gone back to their homes. Every time a cloud went overhead, they worried that actually they were going to be flooded again and have to leave their homes. And the psychological effects of um, these emergencies live with people for many months and sometimes years afterwards. And clearly that's going to be the case in Grenfell as well. So how do we pay attention to actually really gearing up at every stage of this process to build a human-centered approach to this that actually provides support to people for the duration in which they're ex experiencing distress? Thanks very much, Mike. Sina. Thanks very much. Um, uh, and kind of thinking about what I would say for my three minutes, I'm very aware of the, the kind of immense expertise on a kind of national level sitting at either end of me on the panel. So I thought I'd focus on a kind of local response. Um, and Haringey um, is a borough that, as some of you will be aware, has had its fair share of crises from kind of crises involved, crises of social work, uh, like Victoria Columbia and Baby P, um, Broadwater Farm riots way back in the 1980s, um, the kind of riots of 2011, which started in Haringey. So it, it's a borough with quite a lot of experience of, of, of crisis. Um, and I kind of, I therefore find it quite helpful to think about what the difference between an emergency or a major incident and a crisis are, um, because it kind of, I think there are different responses and they are different things, um, and, and certainly from, from my perspective and our perspective. Um, and we have emergencies and major incidents all the time. You know, they kind of happen. If you are, if you're a local authority, you are the body that is responsible for making sure that the road network is closed when there is a major incident involving a fire or a flood or something. And, you know, we deal with those as a major incident. And then there are emergencies. So in common with lots of other boroughs in London recently, we've seen a real spike in uh, gun and uh, knife death deaths, crimes, uh, injuries, um, and actually those are emergencies as well because of the impact they have both immediately in terms of the kind of police response, the community response, uh, and the kind of wider impact it has on the community and the way the community feels. Um, so, so, so for me, an incident is something that you can deal with with an, with an operational uh, response. Um, it becomes a crisis, from my perspective, when it gets out of control and everything starts playing off everything else, and you can no longer just have an operational response to dealing with things, um, and I think there are lots of lessons to learn from all of those, but, but it helps me to think about them in, in different places. Um, so we, can, and we can't avoid emergencies and major incidents, they're just going to happen, you can kind of minimise them to a certain degree. Um, there are some things that we can do to avoid those things becoming crises, and I think that's kind of quite an important question, is kind of what's the learning about how you avoid something becoming a crisis. Um, for me um, and uh, my team, I suppose our learning is... Um, uh, how you avoid those things being crises, being hyper aware about what's going on, because quite often the answer is that you have to nip something in the bud early, um, and quite often you have to communicate really well early on, and if you don't, then something quite quickly spirals to becoming a crisis. Um, flexibility of the organisation and how quickly it's able to respond, and making sure that your structures 
And the way that you address cuts or budget savings don't eat into your flexibility is important. Um, never ever being complacent, kind of knowing that just because you were good in your last crisis or your last emergency, that doesn't necessarily you'll be good in the next one. Um, and understanding your weaknesses really well. Uh, and understanding the weaknesses in your understanding of what might happen in the community, which I think is a, something that local authority, uh, local authority chief executives in London have been super aware of over the last year or so. Um, and there's something about scanning the environment constantly to see where your, your next threat might come from. Um, there are some downsides to having an organisation that does that. My organisation is is Touchwood um, quite good in an emergency? It's had lots of experience at it. The problem with having an organisation which is kind of constantly hyper-aware um, is uh, it can become difficult for it to focus on the long term if you're just kind of constantly in that adrenaline cycle. Uh, I guess one of the subjects that, that kind of you've um, set up for a conversation, Daniel, is, is what's, what's the roles of the different, uh, different organisations um, and different parts of the community and different stakeholders? Uh, and Mike's just talked about that. Um, there is a real issue for, uh, for the kind of central local government uh, relationship in crises, I think, about information um, and who asks for information and when it's asked for. Um, one of the things um, that we can spend quite a lot of time running around and doing is finding information um, which government then decides wasn't quite the right information in the first place. So there's something about deciding what information you source and we quite often end up so providing it to lots of different layers of government because everybody gets very overexcited, wants to be on top of what's going on and wants the assurance and different layers of local and regional government start kind of wanting to provide assurance kind of getting a bit tighter about that would help us all um, local authorities absolutely they'll have a responsibility to be thinking about what the information that's going to be needed and, and absolutely providing the insure, the assurance that's going to be needed to give everybody the confidence to get the emergency responders and the crisis responders um, to kind of let, uh, get on with um, what they need to do thank you very much Zina. bruce thank you daniel um, I'm not going to give a lecture, because it will be a lecture, on how the government approaches preparing for major emergencies, although as an associate of the Emergency Planning College, I can say there are some wonderful courses there, uh, <laughs> if not to go and do them. Um, I, I'm saying to Daniel on the phone the other day, uh, Daniel's request came through to me uh, when I was in the Gulf states, or one of the Gulf states, I, because I'm associated with the Emergency Planning College. I do quite a lot of work in the Gulf, which help, is helping the Gulf states improve their own resilience. Uh, and it's interesting that they are all looking to the UK as an example of, if not best practice, good practice, uh, which is just a, a point I put on the table, which is um, uh, there is something about what we are doing which is good, even if it can be improved, uh, and we shouldn't let go of that. Uh, it's a reflection I hadn't really thought about until I started doing the work in the Gulf. Um, in that work, and indeed in my time as Civil Contingency Secretariat, uh, I, I kind of had four touchstones, which I'm going to just put out there, and we'll see if it's a useful focus for debate. Um, the first was competence, uh, by which I mean principally the public sector emergency responders. Were they good, reliable when it came to a crisis? Um, that had a number of characteristics. Uh, the emergency planning business is characterised by the fact that actually emergencies tend to go in bursts and you get quiet periods. So it's, it's looking for that sort of restlessness in the centre, at least that's the excuse I told myself. Uh, that restlessness from the centre that says, look, don't go to sleep. Something will happen one day, you've got to keep focused on it. But it's also, importantly, something I never quite 
got round to, but I know the government is now looking at it, about setting standards, in my view, uh, for the competence of emergency responders, those are the duties in law, and possibly about assurance and validation, not inspection, I'm not a great believer in inspection, but possibly about insurance and validation that says that local authority, when it comes to it, we can rely on them to activate a good emergency response. So that's my first point, competence, just in the aim of being slightly controversial if there are any emergency responders in the room. Uh, the second point was continuous improvement, uh, learning, you've mentioned it, Daniel. Um, uh, there's always, in every incident, every exercise, the opportunity to pick up in a proper, well-run, lessons-identified regime the areas where you can improve. Uh, so the, other, the next thing I'm looking for is that that is part of the culture and when lessons are identified, they are acted upon. So I take one example which is seared into my soul after the 2005 London bombings. We are not as good as we should have been at looking after uh, families, relatives and so on of those who were thought to be lost in the tube or gone missing or whatever. And we put in place a mechanism, we hope, uh, to deal with exactly that kind of thing were it to happen again under Tessa Jal. Uh, so that was a piece of learning which was systematised, I hope. Uh, I'm going to agree with Mike on, which is actually a neat intro to my third point, which I just label compassion. People will have detected by now I'm running through the seas, uh, which is this human-centred approach. Actually, I'm going to slightly disagree with Mike. It's not only outside the cordon in the response and recovery phase. An emergency is an emergency because it is doing something bad to people. Uh, and therefore, actually, all thinking on risk assessment, emergency planning and so on, should start with people who are affected by that risk. And if you will notice in those circumstances, you get a very slightly different but much more powerful risk assessment, emergency, set of emergency plans and so on, if it thinks about people than if it thinks about mechanics. The trouble sometimes I think with the word resilience is it's a slightly mechanical engineering phrase and there are processes and gold, silver and bronze and so on. If you lose sight of the person in that, the people who are on the end of that risk, uh, then you're losing something important. I had the privilege to work for some ministers whose first instinct when I gave them the bad news was, what do we need to do about the people? And I respected those ministers most, I won't name them, I respected those ministers most because that's exactly the kind of instinct I want out of a senior politician faced with a major emergency, that compassion. Fourth C is... Uh, communication. In the true nirvana of a truly resilient country, which of course we'll never get to, it's not just the public sector. It is critical infrastructure, it is the corporate sector, it is communities of whatever nature. And that means the government has a responsibility to communicate about risk, about emergency preparedness and the plans of what people might do to look after themselves. It has, I think, a heavy responsibility to do that, not only in peacetime, but also when it comes to a crisis as well. This is what's going on. If you're worried, this is what you can do. This is what you can do to look after yourself. So those are my four Cs. I think they add up to the fifth C, which is credibility. If you've got that, you're a long way to having credibility as, um, as a government and the emergency response arrangements you've got into place. Uh, uh, it isn't a perfect answer, and I've been very simplistic in three minutes. 
I'm sure people will raise a whole bunch of other things too, but uh, those are my four key touches. A little more than three minutes, if I may say, Bruce, and, uh, and you slipped a fifth C in as well, which, uh, anyway, um, they're, 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 a good, they're a good set of reminders of the things we should be focusing on. So, I mean, let's, let's get specific about some of the examples that have happened in 2017. We had, on the 22nd of May, the terrible bombings in Manchester. Uh, subsequently, we had the Kerslake report, which Mike has talked about. What I took from the Kerslake report was that the response was pretty effective. There were things that could be approved, and, and that report is you know, part of that process of learning. Um, but basically, the response was pretty good. Uh, and then um, on the 14th of June last year, we had Grenfell. And uh, I, I think you know, the inquiry is still going on. But you know, I think it was a very different sort of response. Um, um, it, it looked like uh, the relevant local authority was overwhelmed. Um, they took 36 hours to ask for help. Central government was not responding very decisively. Uh, there was a particular moment for central government after the elections um, where things all looked a bit uncertain. Um, so um, now perhaps the characteristics of those um, events were very different. Um, I'm sure they were. But nonetheless, what can we draw from those comparisons? Am I being fair, Mike? <laughs> um, well, I think it is important to recognise the very, very different characteristics of those events. So, um, you know, the interesting, you know, so for example, in the, the Manchester attack, um, mo many of the people who were affected by the Manchester attack had come from all over the country. And so while the community responded in a sense of great solidarity in Manchester, the We Love Manchester Fund, it didn't have the complexity of community engagement issues that something like Grenfell did. The London Bridge attack, people died were from overseas. So again, what you have is immense trauma and effect on people and that long-lasting effect, but quite different to the complexity of the community issues arising in somewhere like Grenfell. Um, and um, that it was a much less standard emergency response. Um, in, I can't say that something like Ariana Grande, the attack there was standard, but in a sense that there's a sense in which the authority, everyone responded as expected, um, and um, overall at least, and there was more could have been done to increase preparedness and resilience, like the whole issue about first aiders, more, more, being, more being trained, more available, first aid in the school curriculum, all that stuff, as well as you know, to help preparedness. In Grenfell, the overwhelming complexity, it might have, you know, many local authorities would have struggled with that, um, and, and it went on for weeks. Um, and, um, and of course there are lots of issues in learning around visible leadership in, that, in those moments, um, and, but with, a, with a, a group of people, some of whom, all of whom actually responded with, you know, acted with huge dignity, but also who then were not visible in the same way as they were in some of the other events. And actually the, the difficulty, I was in you know, Gold Command over the weekend, and actually the difficulty of identifying who was affected and finding out where they were. All of those issues made it really complex. Um, so I'm not, ex you know, not trying to do the job of the public inquiry, but there's actually huge amounts of complexity in Grenfell that were, was, was not, and that endured, that was not present in the same way, actually, in the terror attacks, terrible as they were. But essentially, you didn't get a call from, from KMC as a, as a fellow uh, chief executive in, in London. Well, as, as Mike said, you know, it, 
I don't really want to comment specifically on the KMC response, not least because it's not helpful for my relationships with my colleagues in London. Um, but, um, you know, it, KMC didn't ask for us for help for 36 hours afterwards. Um, local authorities across London did provide lots of help, you know, kind of quite quickly right thereafter. So my director of adult services was within kind of two days in um, KNC for a week. Um, my, direct, my head of emergency planning was, you know, there for quite a lot longer. Um, so so there, there was, the, the, London did kind of rally round and provide the support that was needed. But it, it was a really complex, complex piece. I mean, I guess kind of reflecting back on, on Haringey's experiences, both of the riots and Baby P, the, the piece that quite often gets missed is the very, very long tail of these crises. Yeah. So, you know, um, as Haringey, it, uh, when I started five years ago, um, staff were still coming into the um, main office building through the back door rather than the front door because um, post Baby P, there were so many reporters constantly camped outside the front door that, you know, staff went in through the back door and we installed a kind of set of um, security requirements that wouldn't have been out of place in the home office at the time to stop journalists getting in. Um, Organisations kind of forget sometimes how long these sorts of things go on for mm. and you kind of get fatigued from it. Mm. Uh, and I think that's another really important lesson from it. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned the, the um, local resilience forums, which are an important coordination body uh, for many uh, crises. Um, I mean, perhaps people aren't aware of, of, of these bodies, but they... Um, is it is it fair that the, the the local resilience forum in Grenville didn't didn't really didn't really kick into action? Is that is that right? And, and is that part of the kind of learning that central government needs to needs to be doing what you said, not <coughs> inspecting, but but kind of checking that that these forums are in some way checking these forums are, are operational. I, so there's a couple of there's a few questions in there. there, there I'm together. just unpacking the questions. I think irrespective of Grenfell, personally, my personal view is that there is value in having some, where human life and safety are at risk, without getting overboard and having an inspection regime, there is, it is worth having something in place that says there are defined standards and we're doing some kind of assurance against those standards. So we can rely on those people when it comes to crisis. That's irrespective of Grenfell. I'm just going to pick up a, a, add a small point. I mean, Grenfell was undoubtedly massively complex. I think I found there are some emergencies which aren't quite recognised as emergencies in the initial 24 to 36 hours. If it's a terrorist bomb, it's an emergency. Everything clicks in. So uh, that's easy. Something that creeps up on you, uh, I had episodes, um, what should I pick, a small snow event in the, in the West Country. We had a coachload of school kids uh, stuck on one of the, the hills, the A38, notorious around there for about 10 hours, uh, and I got that close to calling out a helicopter just to get them out. Um, but that sort of slow creeping emergency, had something gone very badly wrong, that would have been a bus full of school kids who were actually not being well looked after by the public authorities. So there is, in some emer what turn out to be emergencies, just sometimes a recognition point, and I just wonder if that was the case in Grenfell as well. Mm -hmm. And what about the other point you mentioned, Mike, um, that austerity in local authorities has meant that there's fewer people involved in, in doing the planning? Is that, is that something we're in local authority, um, we're in local election perda, so I know this is a difficult subject for you, but, but I mean, is it, do you see this, Bruce, in, in your...? Um, 
I was fortunate enough in when I started work to blag a lot of money out of the treasury. Sorry, one film, aren't we? Sorry, um, blag a lot of money out of the treasury to go to local authorities. We had a debate then: should this be ring fenced and only um, used for emergency planning and response purposes? I took the view it was fashionable at the time, but I, I did go with the view that actually the best people to make that judgment are local authority chief executives and others in the light of all of the other legal responsibilities that they have about public safety, child safety, child protection, a whole bunch of other things, their best place to do it, recognising that there is a piece of legislation, uh, the Civil Contingencies Act, which if you do not do it properly, in, in, in theory, you can be held to account in courts of law. So I still hold to that view, even in current circumstances. Sina? And you know, it's a set of responsibilities I take really seriously and my organisation takes really seriously. I, it, it's not difficult to say local authorities have got less money for everything and fewer people for everything, which is kind of a, a fact, isn't it? Um, but I think, kind of just going back to that point about human response, there is something about recognising all of the human capital that you have available immediately at your disposal. Yeah. So um, actually, the people who are trained to um, provide rest centres and manage rest centres in my organisation, um, I actively look for those people who do caring jobs in the rest of their job in the rest of their role. Um, so it's not just about the number of people you've got in your emergency planning team. It's about how are you viewing this responsibility as an organisation and in my <coughs> organisation. I view it as kind of everybody's job. I want everybody to be able to step up because lots of my staff are members of their community. They're deeply embedded in their community. They understand their communities. And having somebody who is there in an emergency where somebody's got nowhere to go in the middle of the night um, at, but, but is able to kind of recognise what the local community facilities are, is able to provide a human touch, is as important as having somebody who can kind of manage an emergency control system in the back office to make sure the information is getting where it needs to get to. Mm. And we would re absolutely recognise that abs the same. I think what's interesting, is that Mark? No, no. don't worry. <laughs> um, I thought I said it wrong. Um, is that you know, in all of the emergencies that we, you know, we respond to both you know, around the world and here in the UK, they have common characteristics in the sense it's always local people who respond first because they're always, always there. But it's always, um, there's, and there's always the sense in which a ca the cavalry arrives um, in terms of the, the response phase. What, there is, what is inconsistent, and I think that's true across the UK, is the investment in preparedness, um, because not, I don't think we, our experience would be that not every local authority approaches it, as you've described, because I think that is, is ideal. Um, and actually, and we would you know, also reflect on our own uh, learning about attention to the recovery phase, of actually, because then everybody goes back to their day jobs, but some people have still not been able to go back to their homes, or they're still just living in fear of the rain because every time a cloud goes overhead, or whatever the equivalent is. And actually, I think some of this is about how do we ensure the focus on the preparedness and the recovery phases, as well as that response phase, when everyone absolutely recognises there is an emergency to which you know, we need to provide a response. And having yeah. public health teams is actually really helpful for that. Um, so one of our experiences post-Tottenham riots was having a public health team that thought about long-term community responses to the um, impacts on people's mental and emotional health of having been through that experience was really important. And there were some quite innovative, interesting things people did because public health professionals recognise the long-term in a way that other people who might be involved in responding to a crisis don't necessarily. Mm, that's interesting. Last, last point before we open up to the audience. Um, Mike, one of the really interesting things in this report is about the right to initiate. Um, and you know, if, if, you, if the local 
you know, the local authority or other bodies aren't responding um, perhaps as they should. Um, Organisations like the British Red Cross potentially could have the right to step in. How would you see this working and what's, what's really the case for it? Well, I mean, and what the occurs, like the phrase that they use, which in some ways a better, which he uses, which in some ways a better phrase, is operational discretion. Um, and in in a, in a way, it's it's just building on what we have talked about. It's not that actually, you know, we think that the, an organisation like the Red Cross should be in the inner cordon, um, you know, where actually you need immense discipline in the way in which things are working, and for all sorts of very very good reasons. But there is something just about looking at what's happening and working out what a needs-based approach would be in those circumstances. So rather than waiting to be called to set up a survival reception centre, if, as happened after the London bombings, you know, Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's were effectively um, you know, said to their customers, okay, you need to go because actually we're going to use this as a survival place. Actually, organisations like the Red Cross, we would be currently waiting to be asked to go there. Actually, we've got to be able just to go and do those things. We should, we should be um, mobilising first aiders around after a terror attack because actually there may be the walking wounded. It's actually rather than being locked into the protocols and systems, it's actually really thinking about what the needs are in that immediate phase and then into recovery, um, I think is what, what, you know, what this is about. But do you, do you need a change in legislation no, or guidance or something not. to do that? No. You just need to we start need, doing it? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> There's no barrier. Um, but what, what there may need to be, though, is because obviously it, what you, it's a bit, you know, so again, this is where I think the voluntary sector needs to, you know, with a little bit of help from the statutory sector, but actually we've got to put our own house in order around making it easy for the statutory sector to work with us and because we're operating in coordinated ways. So it's not good for the people who need our help. We're very proud of having set up a support line you know, after all of these emergencies last year, but actually there are a number of other agencies setting up support lines as well. That just creates confusion. Yeah. So actually we're putting a lot of effort into um, how do we coordinate with, for example, victim support and other agencies around having single support lines. So we bring different strengths to it and actually that we have one number which, which is used. So actually really starting to, and we want to make an offer to government um, from the sector um, around what we can offer. But one of the challenges, again, in working with central government on this is that there are so many different parts of central government with um, a stake in this. And actually you get, well, you know, so of course there's civil contingencies unit, but there's also the Home Office, there's DCLG, and all of them have a different angle on some of these issues. And actually how we bring those things, those different government departments together to, to enable a more integrated approach um, uh, that is that we you know, set out in advance is also tricky because you know, we've written a lot of letters and been passed from one department to another. <laughs> Go and see that minister, whatever. So something about how we bring all this together and actually you know, remap what we expect to happen. Whereas in the good old days, Bruce was in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's open things up to the audience. Um, please wait for microphones. Please say who you are. Um, please keep your questions or points brief. I saw Margaret's hand first. You still have to say who you are, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Aldred, former civil servant. Um, I'm very interested in Zena's distinction between um, emergencies, major incidents, and crises. And one of the things which has struck me as being a difficulty, which is perhaps um, most shown by Grenfell Tower as opposed to the response to the Manchester bombing or the London bombings, is where the organisation which has the primary responsibility for responding is seen as in some way culpable and there is an agenda um, amongst um, the wider 
um, commentariat, which makes it extremely difficult for the organization with the primary response, whether it's local government in the case of Grenfell Tower or um, some national emergencies, to manage it in a way um, that is um, best suited to addressing the consequences of the um, crisis and whether the panel has a view about how you can recognize and address that as part of the government response to a crisis. Thank you. Dina, do you want to have a go at that? Gosh, it's really difficult. I mean, I, I completely recognize it um, because looking back at my own organization, I can see periods where it has absolutely got itself into that position and it is really, really hard to get out of. It's really hard to get your voice across um, on those situations. I don't think I've got a complete answer to the question, but I think part of the answer has to be about whatever that body is, whether it's the local authority or whatever else it is, there are a wider set of actors in that system um, and I think there's, it is incumbent on them to take some responsibility for thinking proactively about whether that one organisation is still able to respond, um, kind of making sure that they've got the support in place for the organisation, as well as um, there's almost something about what, what Haringey found post-Baby P, um, and it's the, it's, I, I, it's the example I know best, so I'll talk about that rather than trying to talk about Grenfell, is um, anything we had to say about children and ch children's social care was immediately dismissed, um, because what could we possibly know about it because we'd got this so horribly wrong um, and um, it took the rest of the sector and the rest of gov local government a long time um, for it to kind of be able to offer us a little bit of protection to kind of talk about that but what the sector desperately needed was for us to kind of get off the naughty step because until we did um, every single child crisis across the country became another baby pee so we kind of got trapped into this really vicious circle um, so, so there is something about kind of system leadership in the sector. I think that's not a very clear answer. But mm. do you want to comment on that, Mike? No, I'm interested in British perspective. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Uh, two or three points. Absolutely recognise the phenomenon, Margaret. Um, in my experience, in about the first 24, 48 hours, everybody's a hero and everything's going swimmingly. It's it's at about the 36, 48 hour point that if something is going wrong, it starts to come through. And it is absolutely being on the watch for that and recognise it, having the humility to recognise when that is coming and say we have got to do something very quickly and it may be we have to do it three times bigger than it really needs just to meet whatever is the need that is, that is emerging. Uh, that, that was always what I watched for at about that kind of time. may come from the media, nowadays it's more likely to come from social media or, or a range of other sources. That was, that was the principal thing. Sometimes I absolutely agree with Zena. Uh, I never quite got into this position on my watch, I don't think, but sometimes you just have to change the nature of the, the lead actor, the game. If somebody's lost credibility, don't keep putting them out. Uh, take them away and put somebody else out, uh, if that's what it takes. If you've still got a continuing crisis, which you still need to communicate with the public about, so the public can take steps to assure their own safety. You've got a very important message to be communicated, and it needs to be communicated credibly. But any organisation, I think what I just say is that any, I can't speak as a lead organisation, because we're not the lead organisation, obviously, in the Ministry of but you know, we would want to play more of a convening and lead role with the, the voluntary sector, but any organisation that takes responsibility in these circumstances in the firing line. So we got pilloried for um, taking on the job of 
clearing three football pitches worth of donated goods, you know, some of which were used boxer shorts, <laughs> unfit for you know, human use. And actually what you had a mix of new stuff, secondhand stuff, and then completely unusable things. And um, of course people want to give something. They want to, but actually that's not very useful because it, they're, giving the, they're not giving things that people actually want. And how do you match the people, you've got the wrong size shoes for people. It'd be so much more empowering to give people um, uh, you know, cash. I saw a lady come into the, um, uh, the Grenfell Reception Center. She had three disabled children, sadly, all of whom needed uh, nappies. But the nine year, we, you know, the donated goods only included you know, nappies for babies, not nappies for older kids. You know, it's all about how you tailor it. Of course, we did something about that, but the point is that we got pilloried in social media for stealing all of this stuff, when in fact what we actually did was we returned the new clothes to people affected by the, the fire, uh, in, in, you know, who'd been in the, in the block, um, and the other stuff, at some cost to ourselves, which we're very proud to have done, by the way, we sold through our shops and then recycled the money back into the Grenfell Tower Relief Fund. But actually, we just got a, a lot of abuse for doing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and actually, the key issue is this. In our international work, now, there's a whole drive towards using cash in emergencies because actually it gives people dignity. They choose what their priorities are, and then they actually get, can get back on their lives rather than actually this rather patronising act of handing over something that we've chosen for them. Yeah. Um, and we'd like to see the same, same thing happen in UK emergency response, but that nature of a gift is very hard to get over. I, the second hand I saw here, and then, up, then over here. Hello, I'm Geraldine Blake from London Funders. Um, uh, this is about the importance of the local community sector. One of the things, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the response from the local community around Grenfell was amazing. RBKC had continued to invest in its local community centre in a way that many local authorities don't do. So there was still a grants programme, there was still a thriving sector, which meant that could happen. Um, and then there were a group of funders who got money out very quickly after Grenfell into those community <coughs> organisations, whether they were charities or churches or whatever they were, so that they could keep doing that. Um, the challenge is obviously how you persuade funders to carry on doing that in the long term, um, or how you make sure that, given the climate that we're all working in, that you have a community sector in your borough which does have capacity to be part of resilience, preparedness, all of those kinds of things, and can be part of those conversations. Um, yeah. it's a, it's a, and a good point, point it is. Um, I mean, not an easy one to answer, I think, but... Well, it's so true. The, the local community organisations <coughs> community organization did an unbelievable job. Um, and um, I'm, I'm not familiar with the backdrop to it in terms of why they were there, but they were absolutely relevant, vibrant, getting cash into people's hands, or into organisations' hands. And of course, at some risk to themselves as their organisations in terms of, because that's not the, what they were set up to do. So in terms of both core mission, long-term funding of their own work, you know, is a real threat. And I think one of the, again, um, pieces of learning for the future as we make a proposition from the voluntary sector to government about how things should change is about how do we protect voluntary organisations that do step up but then actually whose survival is threatened by the fact that they've stepped up because actually they've used all their resources for this. They might have used some of their reserves that were actually built up for a wholly different purpose. Mm. Bruce? 
Uh, sorry, I, I think yours is a very powerful point. I could come out with two or three cliches. We, we started on a piece of work we call community resilient. Uh, two or three cliches, all emergencies are local. Uh, all emergencies are going to go out over a very long tail, actually, especially on the psychosocial side. And people are, if you've got community networks, uh, some kind of social capital in, in that particular community, people are going to look for help amongst themselves, and that's going to help them in that longer term. So that's just three very obvious cliches. But if you've got that as a strength, or you can build upon that as a strength, or get people who've already got that just to think about what they do in an emergency, then you're starting to build that more resilient country uh, that we're, we hope we're trying to do. But I absolutely agree with you, starting with, if you've got resilient communities, you've got a real asset which you can treasure. Tina? Absolutely. I, I, it's a really important strategic aim for any organisation which is in the position like a local authority is having resilient communities because you can't do everything yourself. Um, I guess um, one of the things from 2017 um, which was miserable in many ways but it did provide us with lots of lessons for learning, lots and lots of lessons and lots of opportunities for learning. So one of the conversations we've been having locally with our voluntary sector uh, is what, what more do you want us to do to help you respond in these situations? How well do you prepared do you feel at the moment? What information do we need? How do we communicate with you? We're having a workshop next week as it happens because that was one of the questions that came out from them to us following Grenfell. Over here. Yes, uh, Joe Dilger. I'm a GDPR project manager at the University in the South East and uh, also uh, Governor Chair Finance Committee at a Academy Trust in Haringey. And, um, Happens every yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Every Absolutely. Time. Great kids and, and great school, Hartlands High School. Um, my question is uh, actually how, how does the panel feel that government and, and wider players respond to other crises. I'm thinking particularly in terms of my day job, uh, in terms of data crises and perhaps crises that are serious like that but maybe not not as visible immediately anyway yes yeah one uh, of you perhaps so we can get a few more questions in i um well i, I sort of half made the point before which is recognizing a looming crisis yeah. before it becomes a crisis you see what i mean just extending xena's point i think i've got the flip side which is the humility in central i'm central government apparatchik so humility in central government is not for central government to try and solve all of these kinds of things so it may just be a tap on the shoulder of if it's irrelevant local government local police force whatever it happens to be hey hey have you spotted that thing over there that's a central government perspective uh, and actually um some of my greatest, one of my greatest bits of learning from a crisis comes from having uh, the organisation I worked for lost a bunch of data relating to children and they were vulnerable children um, and um, I kind of benefited from um, being able to pick up the phone to a bunch of people to whom this had previously happened and their advice was um, be really clear about what, in, what you know and what you don't know the, what the public wants to know is how many, who, who's affected to be able to phone, but you, you're kind of you're stuck in a bit of a conundrum about you don't necessarily know um, never ever give a number until you're confident that that's the number. So there, there's just there's a bunch of learning around it, and I think you have, do have to treat them like crises, because of Bruce's point, they can very quickly become crises if you don't get on top of it quickly. Uh, this gentleman there, and then the gentleman back there with the beard. Actually, there's two gentlemen with beard. You, you sir, yeah. <laughs> but, but this one first, yeah. Okay, no, no beard. Uh, Hartley Miller, Management Partners. Um, I'm interested in what the panel thinks could be done to improve preparedness. And I'm particularly concerned about three interface areas. 
Um, one of them is what's already been mentioned, which is the interface on data between different agencies and different spokespersons. A second one which um, let me imagine that it never happens, or perhaps it does happen, rivalry amongst the organizations. The actual personal relationships can be an obstacle. Um, and the third one is the media. Um, and the reason why I've come to this is actually experience in the United States where um, some white powder was sent to members of the House of Representatives, I think, and it turned out that many of the media referred to members of that body for information on what anthrax was and what it did. And as a, as a consequence of that and some other thinking about um, other types of incident, um, a whole series of, uh, let's say, fora, and you've referred to fora, were held around the United States in which media were brought together with experts that they could consult. So that in advance, people had some idea of who to talk to, where they could get the information, and how they might work with each other. And I wonder whether enough is being done to lay the foundations for effective co coordination. Is this on the curriculum at the Emergency Planning College? Well, I know there's a piece of machinery in place to do it. So if I take a very snap answer to all, quick answer to all three. Data first. Um, one of the real irritations I had for about a couple of years was we hold this data, it's private data, we can't possibly share it with anybody else because that's a breach of personal privacy. Uh, we eventually got a legal opinion that says if that personal safety is at stake, you have a, not only can you, you have a duty to share it with other people. So eventually we had an information sharing, wrote an information sharing protocol, cleared it with all the lawyers and said to emergency responders, do that and you're on safe legal ground. Look, you've got all those learned QCs who signed the bottom, so, so be comfortable. Um, second on rivalry, well, if it comes to it, I, I never really actually, sorry, there were genuine differences about the best nature of the response, and that just needs to be resolved somehow. Fortunately, I never had kind of personal rivalries. Uh, I never experienced that in six years, and in, in, in the face of a really major emergency, those things kind of melt away, actually, I, I have to say. But, but if it comes to it, it you've just got to escalate it, and somebody like... Head of Civil Contingency Secretariat or the Prime Minister or the Minister has to intervene and either sort it out or take somebody off the pitch. Um, media, it's I think not a secret, although it's not widely publicised, that there is a peace of process in place in peacetime to have the conversation with the media that says, look, when an emergency happens, this is what will happen, let us explain all this terminology, gold, silver, bronze, all the terminology to you, come along and see some of our exercises, play in some of our exercises if you like, which means when it comes to a crisis, they are better placed to transmit an accurate message to the public about what the public can do to secure their own safety and security. That's, that's why it's done. If, if, when it, if you're, it comes to a crisis and they're lost in gobbledygook, emergency responder gobbledygook, then you've kind of lost it because what they say will be completely inaccurate or indigestible. So uh, that's the quick answer to your question. The most fundamental to me is the third, which is, is there something that can be done with the media before you get to a crisis to help them as being a vehicle for transmitting messages to the public? It gets harder, I guess, in the age of social media where everybody's yeah. a commentator. Absolutely. And I hope you're all commentating on this evening's event, by the way. Um, so we've got two um, gentlemen with beards uh, in the aisle, the one at the front first. 
um, Jason Groves from Mark. Um, I, I, it was Bruce, I think, who mentioned in, on the communication of, of uh, uh, communicating with the corporate sector, but I wonder whether actually there's some lessons from the corporate sector that could be learned as well. A lot of large organisations, especially do a lot of work, um, thinking about these issues like cyber attacks and flooding and, and some more risk and how to respond. Um, I, I say this is a slight element of self-interest. I'm involved in the business in the community's business emergency resilience group, uh, which launched today yeah. and happens on the Would You Be Ready campaign, yeah. um, which is designed to help SMEs become more resilient. But I wonder if, if things like that and learnings from the corporate sector could be applied more widely. Um, I know, for example, that the Red Cross is setting up a, an excellent uh, campaign to uh, help um, when volunteers come forward during the crisis actually to train them beforehand. So there's a, there's a bigger army of trained volunteers. But working with the corporate sector on that, I, I wonder if government could potentially encourage a greater cooperation, in, especially in terms of resilience, but perhaps in terms of Thank you. And let's take the, the other question at the same time. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Hugh Lloyd, I, I was touched by uh, Bruce's observation that it feels to me like there, are, there will be more crisis-related incidents that are generated by uh, freak or exceptional weather conditions. And you talked about the children in the coach. Uh, two or three trains on southwest trains were stuck yeah. uh, either side of yeah. uh, Christchurch uh, in the winter, and seemingly nothing happened. Uh, they stayed on the train for 20 hours. And eventually they were they were taken off, and you just wonder what do we have enough method and mechanism to learn from what you might call near misses? We start here. Sure. Uh, so on the corporate side, um, uh, yeah. So we do a lot with the corporate sector. So I'm indeed a member of the business and the community group uh, with you, and you know we have agreements with. Um, Tesco and Land Rover, for example, so that we can draw down resources in the event of an emergency to access support very, very quickly so we don't have to sit on lots of stock so we can pull down vehicles and we can pull in goods and, and what, on whatever, whatever is necessary. The corporate sector is also incredibly generous, to be honest, in mobilising um, when, when for all of those emergencies I've mentioned and we, when we created a thing called the UK Solidarity Fund to try and create greater equity. Um, in the distribution of funds between different terror attacks. We're very concerned about the fact that it shouldn't be a fundraising lottery about who, how much help people get. And um, we, we absolutely have ambitions around learning from the corporate sector on some of the issues that you mentioned around cybersecurity and others because we have a number of corporate partners um, with whom we can work. And so as we look, work through what coordinated approaches look like which draw on all sectors and I think it is quite fragmented at the moment, and that's part of what the purpose of convening these kind of events is to pull together the learning about, uh, to, to get to a place where we can make proposition to, a proposition to government, um, then actually it has to be how will we draw on all of those capabilities. So I think it's a point really well made. And in terms of those specific issues, I mean, I'm very conscious of those, uh, those kind of transport crises and other things that happen, and actually there isn't, um, there may not be mechanisms in place through which people stranded in those kind of ways to actually get the support they need. I think it's something we should follow up on coming out of this. Uh, I'm not sure I've got anything to add except for, I, I think there is absolutely a role for working more closely together on some of these things um, locally as well as nationally. So one of the things I worry about is um, if there's a crisis in, in my patch is, is have we got the right mechanisms for getting businesses together um, who will both be um, potential responder but also potentially massively affected. So you cordon off an area of a street and a, a retail 
area. Um, and those businesses are massively affected, particularly if they're really small businesses. It can be almost irrecoverable, even if it's only for 48 hours. So absolutely, I would really welcome that. Bruce? Which I believe it happened at Borough Market, which is a relatively short cordon, but actually it caused a couple of traders to go under. Um, well, quick response. Berg, I think, is a great initiative. Um, I, we, we try to do a bit of this. I'm sure it's been continued uh, by my predecessors, uh, successors. The, um, uh, it, it actually turned out to be what the information needs of business turned out to be really quite simple to meet, which is what are the kinds of risks that might emerge, and if they do emerge, what are the consequences you might have to deal with. Um, uh, it's not desperately sophisticated, cybery sort of stuff. It's simple things like there might be a cordon around your premises for three days, so how do your staff get to work? Your staff might be ill or too scared to come to work, so what happens if only half of them turn up? You know, very simple things like that um, uh, can be put into some kind of mechanism like Berg that says, look, if that happened, what would you do? And then leave it to people who know their businesses to get on with the planning. Uh, on the uh, near misses point, um, uh, it's, it's, I hope there is learning, although I, I don't know the specific circumstances of Southwest Railways embarrassment six weeks ago. Um, but in 2007 floods, we had people trapped on the M5, 30 miles of the M5 overnight uh, for a, what, about 12, 16 hours before anybody got to them. And there's a range of protocols which were put into place involving local authorities and the voluntary sector to get them, make sure they looked after food, water, uh, nappies, whatever it happens to be. I, I think I, if I were still head of civil contingency secretariat and that polite word I used, restless, I would be asking the question, well, why didn't that kick in in those circumstances? There may be very good reasons, but I think it's worth asking the question. We've got time for one last short, sharp question. I saw your hand first, sir. Yeah. Uh, Fadi Tani, CEO of the Muslim Charities Forum. Um, I think you know leadership is not just for good good things going well, and we know you know it's ought to be tested during difficult times, and it's not a secret you know leadership failed during Grenfell for example, and uh, we need to be honest and actually uh, be clear about this because we need to learn from this life we're lost, uh, pre and during and after we're still struggling to understand how and why it went wrong, so it's important that we highlight this uh, first point. The second one is. Uh, also, I personally believe that the British INGOs also failed to bring the expertise they have because we all know that we actually involved around the, the world to basically help, save, and so on, and we meet really very high standard to do so in doing so. But when we actually tackle something home, we more or less treated it like a PR exercise. We actually send the people who are not really the expertise or the expert in dealing with such thing, and I think this is really worrying because. Uh, we need to come together when something like this happens, and we need really to bring the right people, even if they're not local authority or they're not from the central government and so on, to make sure that we make a difference and to save lives. And uh, I, I, really, I really wanted to hear more, uh, I have to say, honest answers, really, uh, to really, we can go back and say we shouldn't do it this way, we should change the way, and people who actually made the mistake, they should know that this is not acceptable. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so I'd like you to each of the panel members to give their any, any reflection on that, and also that any con short concluding remark. Um, as um, as we are now almost at seven o'clock, and refreshments are being assembled outside as we speak. Bruce, 
I'm going to leave Grenfell to one side because there's a public inquiry going on and that must reach its own conclusions about leadership. I'm going to fundamentally agree with you about your point about leadership. Um, I was always looking, as a, a parachick in, in central government, I was looking for the senior politician as well as the senior policeman or whatever, senior politician who would go out there and be the public face of the response looking after the human beings who had been affected by the response. It, to the degree that I had that, and I was lucky I had that on most occasions, I was immensely happy. Uh, but I agree with you, in a crisis you absolutely need that kind of human-centred crisis leadership, whoever it comes from. But the public is expecting that to come from probably the public sector first, maybe the chief constable, it may be a politician, it may be the chief vet, maybe the chief medical officer. But they are looking for that and you have got to find that. that that's my personal view. That may change as the emergency response develops. You may move to other people who become that, that leader, but I fundamentally agree with your point. Uh, I'm not sure I thought about it at her conclusions. That's I would, fine. I would, Don't um, worry, Bruce, we're over time anyway. Awesome. Thank you. Zena. Uh, very briefly, I think, I think the tone of leadership um, in a crisis is one of the most important things that, that happens and get the tone wrong and everything else, happen, everything else goes wrong very quickly thereafter. Um, so if I think to um, the Finsbury Park attack, um, which happened actually just over the border, so not quite in Haringey, but, but, um, but right on the border and with um, affected a bunch of people from Haringey who were worshippers there, the tone that the community set and the community leaders set very quickly, and, and actually the way that the individuals who were there responded and the way that that was played out in the media set a particular tone for that incident um, and I think actually set a very helpful tone um, and enabled the community to come together around it and to move on in a, a really sensible and sensitive way. So I, I completely agree that setting the right tone of leadership and being clear when you've got things wrong and learning from those is really important. Every crisis and every emergency is an opportunity to learn how to do it better next time because you can almost always learn something from it even if it's just a tweak around the edge um, the difficult thing is having constantly having the discipline to do that. Thank you. Mike? So I completely agree about leadership. I think every organisation who responded, particularly at Grenfell, but also in all the other categories, learned a lot about leadership and about um, how it played its part and how it interacted with other leaders in order to try and help the whole to be greater than the sum of the parts. I think the point about the British INGOs is, is, is a really fascinating one, actually. And indeed, you know, Islamic Relief and Muslim Aid um, did um, uh, mobilise one thing that's worth, as we look at the international comparisons, it's worth bearing in mind that even though Grenfell was, um, you know, the, all of these attacks were horrific and horrendous, actually the international emergencies are t tend to be on a, a different scale in terms of, you know, the 600,000 Rohingya refugees coming over the border into Bangladesh. The numbers are just colossal in, in comparison to the numbers that we're dealing with in these situations. And we have to think, therefore, about what is the problem that we're trying to address here. And I don't think it's about mobilising international INGOs. I think it's about, because we have a, um, uh, you know, emergency services who are well-trained and actually well-practised and disciplined, and we have some great local authorities who um, are... Uh, where, when it's working well with local resilience forums on our coordinating and convening. We have some great voluntary sector organisations who are already present. The issue is how do we make systematic improvement in all of that, in all of the consistency of it, so that we've got the preparedness right, the response right and the recovery right, um, but actually proportionate to the situation in which 
which we're actually trying to address. Um, and, um, and I think what, you know, what, what we're about as the Red Cross is all about what are the combinations of things that we all need to do to try and kind of map an approach that updates the current approaches for the learning, the learning from 2017 and ensures a greater likelihood of consistency of approach and that sees it through and that is genuinely human-centred. Human Thank you. So I hope this evening has, has contributed to learning from what happened in 2017 so that the country and the government at all levels is better prepared. Uh, please, uh, let's continue the debate outside. Please join us uh, for a drink and some snacks. Uh, and also, please join me in thanking Bruce, Zena, and Mike. <laughs>